1: Welcome back to another Share Your Light episode. In this episode, there are some topics that may not be appropriate for small children or may be triggering for others, so please use your own discretion. We do these episodes to promote members of our listening audience who are maybe stepping out of their comfort zone a little bit, but truly stepping into their power, their light, and their purpose in order to raise the vibration and help Other people in their communities on a global level. Maybe it's through a business, maybe it's through a project, but it really is heartwarming to see how we are building more community amongst ourselves and it's causing quite a ripple effect. It's absolutely incredible and beautiful. Today, we're really, really lucky and happy to welcome Benita. Benita is the founder and interim executive director of the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies. Benita is passionate about business being used as a force for good. Entrepreneurs can solve problems, and mentoring is critical to the individual's success. Benita believes in many learning styles and that you must love what you learn, become credentialed, and raise the bar in all you do in your life and community. Benita completed her entrepreneurial training at UMass Lowell. She obtained her teaching certification through Eastern Maine Community College while teaching business ed at Mount Blue High School and Foster Tech Center. Bonita's entrepreneurial spirit was fed through her self-employment and her family business in South Boston in Charlestown, Massachusetts. Benita was president of Williams Maritime, where her company was contracted by over 30 international shipping lines and the Massachusetts Port Authority. Benita employed union and non-union employees while maintaining solid efficiencies for the proper maintenance of an intermodal pool that averaged 1,200 units. Benita's other work experience includes being elected treasurer of the town of New Sharon, Maine, work for International Greetings, Corporate Designs, and Polo Ralph Lauren. Benita's volunteer experience includes working with Make-A-Wish Foundation, the POW-MIA League of Families, and the Marine Corps Toys for Tots programs. Benita's interests include interior design, antiques, hospitality, genealogy, and history. Welcome Benita and thank you so much. Your bio is absolutely beautiful. It's, it isn't it amazing when you think you know people and then you read what they've accomplished. And it's like, wow, you've, you've jammed a lot in.
2: Oh, thank you. Oh my god, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, the reason that I it this is near and dear to my heart is that I've seen you in action working with children and I know your your mindset is very similar to my own in empower, don't enable. Let's give people the skills that they need to step up and and to have become a functioning member in society of whatever that looks like for them. And I feel like you've done that. You've developed the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies. And if you could just talk about how that came to fruition, it's an amazing story.
2: Okay, so when I was teaching up at Mount Blue High School, I taught a business class and I had to have a focus area. So I chose entrepreneurship. What I had noticed when I started the class that a lot of the kids were a little bit unsure of what they could do. And I was saying, you can do so much. Look at this community. We have so many needs. We can, You can do anything. You could open up an arcade. You could do this. And, and they just looked at me very perplexed and didn't really seemed to think that it was possible. And uh, I was like, of course it's possible. You know, just it requires hard work and having a dream and finding what your passion is. So I was really struggling with that. And so I decided to do a SWOT analysis with the kids and saying, okay, let's look at the community as a whole. What are the, you know, the strengths and opportunities and threats and weaknesses? Let's look at that. Let's look at the community as a whole. So we we did that. The project evolved. It evolved where I said, okay, so now that we've identified some needs, what are we gonna do? What, what's a, a solution? Let's problem solve this. And out came this project, the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies. And the kids worked on every single facet throughout the, the process. They did a PowerPoint. They did a business plan, made logos opened a checkbook, uh, sought insurance to figure out how much was the insurance going to cost and developed a website. And I did a lot of the heavy lifting. However, they came along for the ride and it gave them an education and exposure to what it looks like to form a business so that they could take that learning and apply it in their own lives once they found that passion. The following year, we ended up applying for a Scowhegan Savings Bank um, grant for like $5,000 because we figured, you know what, let's let's actually make a a 501c3. Let's form a nonprofit. And that's going to cost some money. So maybe Scowhegan Savings Bank will pay for it and then give us some money to develop our website, et cetera, et cetera. And we applied and then heard back from the bank and they said, we love this idea. Would you really do it? I was like, well, I don't know. Let me talk to the the, the kids and see if this is something we want to pursue. Talk to the business partners. And so so they were all in. We started to really, really amp up. They got excited. Um, Then I was seeing that kids that were not even in our class wanting to chime in. It became really interesting. And a lot of excitement started to build. Uh, I had a yearbook class as well. Those kids even started to get involved. At a certain point, then I ended up getting called into the superintendent's office and said, you know, what are you doing with these kids? And I said, we're doing, we're creating a business. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so they're like, yeah, you you can't do that. (laughs) So I said, well, why not? (laughs) I, of course, challenged it because I felt really passionate about what the kids were doing and learning. And I wasn't going to pull the plug on it and, you know, deflate their balloon. Right. So I advocated for it, you know, clashed a little bit. And then at the very end, the school superintendent said to me, Benita, I am not telling you that this isn't a wonderful project. It's a fantastic project. What I'm saying to you is that nobody's doing it. I said, okay, well, I'm going to take that as it's time for me to go do it. And so, so I I left because what I was seeing in the class is that there were a lot of kids that lacked exposure and they had a lot of needs. Um, they were really struggling. And how I learned about that was through an unfortunate personal event. My daughter was dating a young man named Joshua, and he was dating my daughter from the time he was 14 to, well, my daughter was 14. He was two years older than her until she was about 19, 20 mm-hmm. years old. And Joshua was um, raised by his grandfather. His mom had passed away from heroin and AIDS when he was six months old. And he was being raised by his grandfather and like 11 aunts and uncles. Mm-hmm. And big Irish Catholic family from north of Boston. Yeah. And Joshua was just an amazing, amazing human being. He was kind and just talented and just a beautiful soul. And when he had his wisdom teeth taken out, he ended up getting prescribed Oxycontin. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he kind of got a hook to that and then got access to parents, uh, you know, friends, parents, pills that were in their medicine cabinet and it evolved and it evolved. And then about the time, uh, my daughter was, you know, 19, 20 years old living in Portland. She had called me one night crying, saying that Josh wasn't acting right. He was actually angry and hostile and just not okay. And and it was, it was going on. So I finally said to her, listen, I don't know what's happening, but his behavior is awful. you need you need to break up with this this kid. Yeah right. And she did. And they remained friends for a long time. Then I started hearing things from my sister's husband, who was a, a detective in North Andover Mass, about who Josh was hanging out with. Mm-hmm. And there were red flags popping up left and right until the point where we finally got a call saying he had been arrested with a hypodermic needle. So we knew it was heroin at that right. point. From there, um, Josh ended up uh, becoming a full blown mm-hmm. addict. Um, he you know, was close to Lawrence Mass. His friends, he had a couple of friends also that were addicted and they were dying. And okay. his cousin who was his sidekick died. Then his friend Erica died in his house then his grandfather who raised him died all like within the six month time period. Oh, that poor kid. Uh-huh. And so I said to my daughter, I remember saying to my daughter, are you ready? Cause we're going to lose him. Yeah. And She said, I, she's like as ready as I can be. Mm-hmm. We lost him. I, I got a call at like four o'clock in the morning from my sister, you know, saying he's gone. And so I had to call my daughter while she was living in New York just met a, a new guy in her life, now her husband. And uh, I had to call her and it killed me to call my daughter and say this because I knew that they were soulmates and they just couldn't be together because of his addiction. Right. And when he passed, we went to his funeral, of course. It was as if everybody was waiting for her to walk in through the door. Mm -hmm. Because everybody knew that they had been separated for, you know, eight years, but she was the love of his life. She had a really hard time going through that door. When we went in, we saw North Andover Police Department there. Everybody was saying, you know, this is tragic. This is tragic because he had such shame about being an addict. He would always like bow his head and say, I'm sorry, officer. So-and-so I, you know, I, I'm really, you know, I'm sorry because he was not proud to be an addict. He didn't want to be an addict, but he was put in that position. So I always felt as though like you always, you you walk away and you say, do I have, you know, you feel a little bit of guilt. You feel like, what could I have done? I think an awful lot about that. Like, what could I have done to sort of support him better? And would I have made a difference? I don't know that answer. Nobody knows, but it was a, a tragic loss. And how I felt when I returned to school on Monday morning was just so heavy. And I, I shared it with my class. I said, listen, you know, I want to talk to you all about this because this is what's happened to my daughter's boyfriend, who was an amazing human being. And I don't want that to be you. Right. And when i opened up that conversation the kids all of a sudden felt as though that they wanted to share their information as well it really opened up communication and my my room kind of became almost like a landing place for a lot of kids to come in and have these conversations that were alarming they were you know alarming and and when they would tell me things like oh My dad was really drunk last night and put a gun in my mouth, you know, and put me up against the wall and put a gun in my mouth. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, my God, what, you know, what, who have you, who have you spoken to about this? And they don't tell anyone. No, no. And, and so, you know, that that child is not going to hear a single thing all day long. Their head is going to be in that, that trauma place of what happened the night before. To me, I would much rather be peppering them with encouragement and saying, we need to so- we need to make sure you're safe, as opposed to, let's open your books to page 23 and read this chapter. You know, this mm-hmm. is, and you know, I got uh, a little bit of a reputation for, you know, oh, it's a hangout or this and that. I'm like, no, no, not a hangout.
1: It's- it was a safe place for, ch- for children. because they are children, to be heard and seen without judgment. Right. And, And I remember where you were located, you were very close to the school resource officer's office, you were close to administration, you were close to the guidance. The fact that they felt safe enough and they felt heard, I don't understand why that isn't, because there are in a lot of schools and a lot of districts, safe rooms. There's, you know, you can go here to express yourself, but they're not utilized for what you were providing.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I would hear a lot of times, you know, the kids that were those kids,
0: those right. kids,
2: you know, where you'd hear them over the PA system getting paged after they left my classroom. And I'd go, they're probably in the bathroom talking because they had to go on to their English class or whatever. And, They're probably getting a call from their mom or, you know, or or doing something. And I would always have to pick up the phone and say to the, you know, assistant. Powers that be. Yes. yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, FYI, just so you know, bad night. It was kind of a roll of the eyeball type thing. I'm like, no, this is real. This is real life. This is what these kids are experiencing.
1: And everything you're talking about, Benita, is not this community or that community or you're rural or you're in the inner city. It's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere. And the drug epidemic, there's so much everyone is dealing with, but then you take these young adults, these children who really exactly what you started the conversation with, they don't have the skills or the knowledge or the modeling to say, I can be something more. I can break this cyclical pattern in my family of origin. And so when you left, which believe me, I understand a lot of the dynamics behind that, but you actually, there is this beautiful store downtown now that is supporting this project. And you have artisans and you have products and you have, I mean, how did you make the shift from leaving the school into actually becoming part of the community?
2: It was a fluke,
1: total fluke.
2: <laughs> it, it was, it was. <laughs> And so I tried to figure out what is it this thing looks like? How do I, what are my next steps? Even we've got our nonprofit status. We've got a board we're pulling together. We have a plan. What does our plan look like? And one of the board members at the time was a um, store owner downtown. And she said, hey, you know, there's a space going up for rent next month across the street from me. How about you? go open up a retail store because we just lost three retail stores. And this is Mm pre-COVID. We just lost three retail stores and you could open up a store because I know you can do it and you can get word out about what you're trying to accomplish in the community. And maybe you can get some community support and some of the business owners to support you as well with these kids. I personally am not a big fan of retail because I, I think about... No, we're in a rural community. We've got Amazon. Oh, this is a risk. And so, I said, "Well, all right, let's do it." It wasn't a lease, so I was like, "All right, well, we could If if I flop, I could Not going to take the gas pipe. And so, <laughs> so so I said, "Well, I've got you know, I've got thirty two thousand in savings. I've got about seventeen thousand in a small." Retirement fund that I put together when I was at the school, and I said, you know, got that and that, and uh, you know, that's that's money, that's access to some money. And I said, all right, let's let's do it, let's do it. Two weeks later, COVID hits, everybody's going retreat, retreat, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't retreat because I knew in the back of my mind there were these kids that were living in horrific situations. And they needed this as a tool to become empowered. Mm-hmm. And they, they needed this. They were excited about this. And again, I wasn't going to be the one to pull the plug and disappoint them because they had been disappointed so many other times. Right. And, you know, I just, I just couldn't be that person again. So I said, no, let's try to, you know, ride this out. Let's ride it out and Come July eighteenth, twenty twenty, we were able to open the doors, and it was sparse and and <laughs> kind of sad looking, but it it worked. It worked, and we had a little bit of business. And every time we made a little bit of money, we reinvested it and bought more product. And uh, then we ended up applying for a couple of grants. We got some startup support through the Maine Community Foundation. And uh, a few other uh, banks and whatnot, got like 5,000 here and there. And I was like, okay, we got this. We got this. And and uh, by the time uh, 2021 came along, we were actually showing a profit for everything. I was like, oh my gosh, we got, you know, $55,000 in profit. Let's look at trying to, you know, start uh, looking at this housing issue. Mm-hmm. And so we started looking at the housing issue and we applied for another grant and and then I said, okay, well, now this is getting serious. I need to hire somebody because I'm not an expert in nonprofit. Let's hire a consultant. And it was starting to become a little bit of a buzz in other communities and saying, what's what's going on with that lady over in Farmington? You know, that she's doing something. <laughs> you know, we're kind of interested and people would come in and ask questions. And it was great. We started and the consultant said to me, okay, you need to stop what do you mean stop? She said, you're running this too much like a business. And I was like, well, we are a business. And she's like, no, no, you're a nonprofit and you're not in charge. The board is in charge. And, you know, you need to be seeking their input on all these decisions that you're making. And I felt like I got a little bit scolded. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, sorry. And so we started engaging the board and it became a process a long process it was you know okay we need to do this we need to do that for compliance we need to vote on what is the mission statement what what is the the goals for this organization what is our strategic plan and getting everybody to really embrace and understand and and hone in on a focus has been almost a year's worth of work we We're told, you know, no grant applying until you get this straightened out. So we have not applied for a grant in like a year. Mm -hmm. And so I've been having some small heart palpitations thinking about, oh my gosh, you know, this is scary because we're not making piles of money as a, you know, small rural gift store. It's a beautiful gift store, but we're not making monies to, you know, support the work that we're doing yet. And then we've also bitten off this new second social enterprise of building tiny homes for our homeless youth. We've been so blessed to have attracted some key players in in the community. Everyone from Maine Cabin Masters, who, you know, have a show on the Magnolia Network, to J.D. Irving, who is the Largest producer of white pine in North America, they supply Home Depot. We've got these people that are, you know, saying, "Hey, I want to bring things to the table. What can I bring to the table?" So, J.D. Irving has donated sixty nine hundred dollars worth of lumber, and Maine Cabin Masters is looking at what can they do to to help out. We're getting people from across the country who are just reaching out and saying. I've studied homelessness for 10 years and I've traveled 40,000 miles on on homelessness. And I think what you're doing is spot on. Correct. I want to help and it's great, but we're fragile. We're fragile because it does unfortunately boil down to money. You know, how do you pay your rent? How do you pay for insurance and continue to conduct classes for kids?
1: And how do you shift a community paradigm that may not be comfortable with something new that you're introducing? And that's huge. That's really huge. And when you were speaking about, you know, the dynamics in a school and then to see that carry over into you you are full speed ahead. Let's write grants. Let's build this business. And then they're like, oh, put the brakes on. So twice, two examples there. Put the brakes on, Benita. You're, you're doing this, but you have to switch and do it this way. And now I feel like you're you're at this next crossroads, this next, next turning point with this. The business may not be completely self-sustaining, but it is an amazing, you walk in there and it's fun. It's light. There's, there's artisan products. There's these funky little things. It's just really a unique place and you can feel it. And every time I've been in there, What fascinates the hell out of me is how different the population is in there. You have people I never see other places are in that store. And it's really, it's cool as hell. And you keep reaching out and reaching out and saying, please help us because my heart, and your story brings tears to my eyes. What you're doing could be a prototype for other communities that are struggling with how do we help these young people that are feeling kind of lost, that may be in horrific situations. How can we help them realize that they're going to be okay, that they are valuable and housing and food security and employment are so, so, so vital.
2: Mm -hmm. It is, it is. And you know what I love about working with the kids is that they have grit. They have Mm -hmm. true grit. I'm like, oh my gosh, little MacGyver here. And, <laughs> you know, and, and so I just think they're fabulous. I think they're um, just in need of encouragement and support and opportunities. If you give them an opportunity, if you give them uh, love and support and be what somebody said to me yesterday, which I really liked, was be the salt and light for somebody. And oh. I liked that. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. I was just like salt. I'm like salty. She said, no, think of it as, and she had heard this in church and she said, be like the salt that you put on an egg. Like, so if you were to have an egg, you want a little bit of salt, just a little bit of flavor and then just be that light, you know, not asking you to be the whole salt shaker, just be a little salt, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and the light. And I was like, that is so spot on, right is that it doesn't take much. It doesn't take no. much to, to change a kid's life. And to be truly seen
1: and not, and this happens a lot in rural communities because I've lived all over the country, lived in a lot of different places. And and the, I'm not making this a blanket statement, but a lot of times if someone knows where a, a family oh, well, what can you expect? It's this family. Or you know how his brother was. Or what can you expect? He makes these choices. Or she does this. Or they do that. That sounds so judgmental. But there's a knowing. Because if you're in a small enough group of people, there aren't that many people you're going to run into in the course of a day. So people know your story in a way that they don't when you have the anonymity of being in a big city or a larger town. So to encourage people to, and I think it's important to note that Benita is not just working with this fringe population. These are really nice kids who have had a hard, they've, they've had difficult things. These aren't recalcitrant, angry, you know, they, they're kids who have had a hard time. And it might just be rural poverty. It might be being raised without the the resources that they need or deserve to have a quality of life. But that's, I think, what all of us are trying to do is how can we help someone? You just made a really beautiful point, and I I hope that I can give justice to that, is that they have grit. They don't want to stay in that same place. They're not asking someone to, to do it for them. They just want a chance.
2: Right. Right and and they know how they don't want to live. They right. know. you know And
1: what intrigues me with this is um, we've we've had many conversations about different things, but it reminds me of people who choose to parent their children differently because they know exactly what not to do. and they break that cycle and they bring this is about love. And not to be like airy-fairy-woo-woo, woo, but it's about love and support and encouragement. It's not about, let me do this for you.
2: Mm-hmm. It's true. And let me do it with you. Right. Anything, right. You know? Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. But th- these are the people that are going to, and I believe this in my heart, you help someone stand up, they're going to help someone else stand up. I believe that. It's and, true. And it has to be genuine, though. It has to be purposeful.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and, and it
2: might not happen right away, you know. Oh my might, goodness, no. No. no, no, But it'll and, happen eventually. You and
1: know. there's, and that's that's the part. Before we started to record, we were talking about wanting. Your, what I feel is you're trying to build a place, a situation, a pro, whatever we want to call it that will have the longevity to keep going so that if you do this for X amount of years, it's still gonna continue 10, 20, 30 years and shift the dynamics in the community and again, empower people so that they have security and stability.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think to myself about how many elderly folks that we have in our community and how they would be thrilled to be able to come and show, how do I make this jelly? How do I make that jam? And work with kids to be able to share what share their knowledge. And then we work with the kids and say, take it to the next level. Put a label on that. What do you need to now know about you know, mass production of a product? What do you need to know about um, selling online? What, what do you need to know what would you charge for that jelly? How much labor went into it? And how can you make this an opportunity? Just passing that knowledge down from a woman who's, you know made jelly in her kitchen for 25, 30 years and being able to share that is fulfilling so many different needs, both for the child and, say, the the elderly woman. It's community.
1: It's that power of an intergenerational approach to living in community. We heard that at the school that we' all this is going to be an intergenerational building, but it wasn't that wasn't what was promoted. And what you're saying and I I wrote something when when I was working on my master's years ago on uh coming up with a community project that would allow children, young young adults people, kids whatever we want to call them, to work in collaboration with older people who might not have the physical ability to take care of their home or their yard or their animals or to put in a garden or do whatever. And I really think that what you're, you're on to something huge with that, really huge with that.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you're right, it comes down to shifting the mindset of doing it a little differently, but also generating funds that can be. Get this established. Truly, this isn't a quick send bonita money. This is more listen to what she's really saying and what she's doing for this small community, but also for the faces that are looking back at her in that store, in, in that the tiny homes that they're building and the resources. We can all do this. We can all make a difference like this. And I, I truly, this touches my heart in a way that something hasn't a long Long time because it's so damn important. And yes. your story that you started with of Joshua, I talked to a lot of people who have lost loved ones to the opioid epidemic, to substance abuse. You can't judge, you can't say, oh, that's so and so, or they're from a bad part of town, or it was their family. It can happen to anyone, and they're good people.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: They're good people who made a choice. That's all.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it just seems so tragic to me because he was innocent. He was somewhat innocent in this whole thing. You know, he was, you know, whether or not his body was conditioned to instantaneously become like, "Ooh, that was just what I needed because he was a heroin baby. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know that answer.
1: But he's become the poster child for why you're doing this, which I think is important to anyone. It may not be a similar project, but find someone in your life that you have the similar feelings about, and they might be the catalyst to help you develop a program or a project or something in your own community or life that's going to help a lot of people.
2: And it all started with a conversation about, about him, and the the conversation was opened. As I was hearing things from kids, I I couldn't sit idle and say, "Oh well, that you know, that's unfortunate. That sucks to be you." It's right. no, no. We need to do something about this. I'm not going to sit idle as you're telling me this horrific situation. There are things out there to support you, and we just need to find them. And so, really, just hearing that. I think is validating for a lot of kids, and validating that their situation is not normal. We're not going to point fingers about like your mom and dad are bad people. It's your mom and dad are going through something not okay at the moment because, mm-hmm. like whatever the reason is, you know whether it's generational trauma or whether it's addiction, you need to validate what it is that that kid is experiencing and saying that. This isn't okay. We need to make sure you're okay. And subsequently, when we find out that you're okay, you're going to be a stronger individual for your family. You're going to be a model for your younger brothers and sisters. That's where it stops. Once you, as soon as you like get involved, it it starts to slow down the process. It's an amazing thing to be watching. And I've been very intentional about making sure this is sustainable. So over the past couple of years, I've outreached different organizations and connected with people and saying, like, how do we get these kids paid? Because, you know, poor Mrs. Murphy, she can't afford to pay kids 15 bucks an hour under the table. Um, She's on a fixed income, but she needs her wood stacked and she needs her lawn cut. How can we make it a win-win? So It's been great in the sense that I've been able to figure out how to get kids involved in different programs like the Oa. It's a workforce opportunity federal program that will pay kids up to 350 hours to, you know, minimum wage to get enrolled in this program for a work experience. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to put together work experiences for these kids and then also just getting them there. But getting them enrolled is a is a huge challenge because half of them don't have birth certificates, social security cards, parental support to sign off on things, and um, transportation. All these things are barriers just to get them even into a federal program, which is intended for kids just like them. And so it's really just getting those tools fine-tuned and fine-tuning the process so that way it's a smooth running machine and getting these kids connected because there are programs out there that can make them thrive. It's challenging. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> deny that. You know, how do you get your social security card when you're under 18 years old? Well, how do you get your birth certificate? Well, you need a you need a social security card to get your birth certificate. Right. <laughs> and you need your your birth certificate to get your social security card it's really, it's challenging and it's, it's, it's work. And if we have people that are working and and committed to getting these things done for these kids and not be wishy-washy, be like, Oh yeah, well, sorry, I couldn't make it or sorry. You know um, my daughter's sick. She has COVID and then this kid is just floundering and then he feels hopeless. It's making sure that you see it through to the very end, and that you mentor this kid throughout the entire process and keeping their their spirit up and making them feel like you can do this. Dig deep, dive deep, get that grit. You're going to do this. It's going to be amazing.
1: Everybody wants to feel like they matter. Right. Everybody. And yeah. to get up in the morning and have something to do that's purposeful.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what's even nicer is watching after they accomplish something. And seeing that that pride, that's a win. Seeing how proud they are. And, and then, you know, to be admired by their younger peers, that's an even more interesting uh, dynamic to watch. Like we have a young lady who started with us three years ago, who's now teaching classes in the makerspace. And she has kids that are 11, 12 years old that she's now teaching and she's a high school senior. Mm -hmm. And she's teaching them in the maker space. And now she's, it's like a peer to peer thing. And she's the leader, but she came in at their, you know, I think she was a freshman at the time. She was a freshman in high school when she came in and it's just watching that whole evolution. It's validating for me. That's
1: beautiful. Yeah, Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about, the center, about what you're offering, about how they can become involved?
2: So on our website, um, it's www.cesmain.com. Right. It's
1: the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies. There's a a lot of resources there. There, You can look at the staff, the board, what they're offering. There are places where if you'd like to, to help financially, or if you'd like maybe some questions about, is this something that would work in my own community? Is this something that I want to reach out to people that I'm close to? Or maybe you could hand off this information to someone else that you know that would say, wow, look what this woman is doing in rural Maine. We could try that here in wherever you might be located. But thank you so very much, Bonita. This has been, truly, when I say it touches my heart, I can feel your passion for this. But I can also feel how how important this is for, for these people, for these children, for these, these young adults who are going to become part of the community. We, we need to help each other out. So thank you so very much.
2: Now thank you. Thank you, Denise. It's important that we create these homes and these places for these kids because my home is my my refuge. And mm-hmm. these kids need to have that same peace in their life and support and we're going to do it we're going to do it we're going to empower them so that they can do it well
1: i just want to add one part that we didn't go into quite the the whole uh, tiny houses for homeless youth students these these young adults are part of the process of learning to build they're learning how to do this they're learning all these other aspects but then they have the option of buying these homes eventually So that this becomes something that is long-term. This isn't, oh, you age out. It's similar to you're in the foster system. Oops, sorry, you're 18. Here's your bag of stuff. Goodbye. This is a lifestyle change. This is uh, allowing. So this can become, they have found a piece of land. They're doing this. But this is about truly changing people's lives. So keep shining your light,
2: girl. We need you. Thank you, Denise. Thank you so much for this opportunity. You're welcome. And
1: anyone listening, remember, there's something in you that you're going to make a difference. So please, please shine your light. Take care